I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx. And you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. You got a beer? Not only do I have a beer, but I have taken the last beer in the house. Oh, you deserve it, though. So I'm glad (laughs) you took it. And cheers. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Welcome to Muses Podcast, the podcast all about the fantastic, the fabulous, the far out women in music history, the groovy babies, the groovy mamas that were the rock wives, the groupies, and even the musicians themselves, photographers, any backstage mover and shaker. We want to hear their story. That was a great intro. If I didn't listen to this podcast and I heard that intro, I'd be like, damn, I got to listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. That's what I was going for. It was off the cuff. It was totally just Friday vibes, Friday afternoon feeling, end of the workday, let's party. Perfect. How are you doing? I'm happy to be on the weekend. So I'm coming to you not live. I'm coming to Link's live, but not the listeners live from the guest room. I decided to record in bed today for a couple of reasons. One major reason is that my office is out of control messy. It's kind of like that's probably how my normal used to be, but I've really made an effort over the years to just clean my stuff up and to keep tidy instead of letting the office or the bedroom or the living room get messy over the course of the week and one do one big cleanup. I now tend to clean as I go, and I just didn't do that. So there are like three cans of bubblies, one can empty, three empty cans of sparkling water, one empty can of beer, cheese wrappers, (laughs) a plate, some clothing, yoga mat, papers, just all over my office. And I've been in there all week and I just needed a new vibe, a new energy, a new color. So I'm in the guest room. I appreciate this. And I like this view because I also get to see the beautiful green background and these amazing pants that you're wearing. (laughs) I wish people could see this. They're, I don't even know how to describe them. They're like 90s. Yeah, I'm going to take a pic. I'll take a pic and we'll put it onto the carousel at the very end. Perfect. Like most everything I own in regards to my clothing, these are hand-me-downs. 
I don't remember who gave them to me. If you see this photo and you're like, I gave them to you, let me know. So they're so old. They're super worn in. They're kind of um, <sighs> not fuzzy, but they're like, they're warm. They look so comfy. Like they look like exactly what you'd want to be wearing when you're lying in bed and like ready to hear a great story. Yeah, and that's the other reason why I'm lying in bed. It's just because i am got my lean on, I'm leaning back, I've got my beer, and I'm ready for a great story. Lynx, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I've been excited about presenting this for a while. I started reading Britt's book, I think it was like November, and then crazy, we had a crazy winter, a lot of things were happening, and I had to put it down for a while, and I finally got to go back to it, and... I love I love Britt Eklund so much and it was really fun to kind of dive into her world and I'm excited to share it with everyone. Amazing. For this episode, I read her book, which is called True Brit. Now it came out in 1980, so there's quite a lot missing from there. But of course, I did some more research and I, I've got it in there. But a good chunk of this is from her book. So Britt was born October 6, 1942 in Stockholm, Sweden. Her father was an artist who inherited a family business, which was an upscale women's clothing store. So Britt grew up with money. She says they really lacked for nothing. Her early childhood is filled with very happy memories. She grew up with three brothers, and she says she was quite a tomboy because of that. School is not easy. Britt says people who admire her beauty now wouldn't have recognized her growing up. She calls herself the original ugly duckling. She says she was overweight. She had mousy brown hair. Her father would make her wear it in this unflattering way, which showed off her protruding ears and teeth. Can I just say something? I know that she's describing herself, and this is something that's written in the 80s, but I can't help but notice that now or like hope that now especially when we're discussing like beauty at all sizes and in all bodies that that wouldn't be like one of the reasons do you know what I mean oh yeah and this was actually a very interesting book for that too because there's so many instances in it where I think if you had written this book now you would maybe have a completely different opinion of it just like either behavior with men is not recognized for what it is in the moment or in that time period. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And I want to say, I was going to say it's at the end of the episode, but always great to say it now. Britt is like amazing, very active right now. She's like Me Too supporter and has really used her voice over the years. So it was interesting to read this book and know like, okay, this is what she put out in 1980 and to see the progression from that. Great. So yeah, she had insecurities about her looks. And she would often get made fun of, but she ended up turning that around where I guess a lot of people do this, where they become the class clowns sort of to be in on the joke instead of being the joke. She says she spent so much time, though, in school trying to fit in that it really took away from her schoolwork. Yeah. While she has happy family memories, she does talk about her father being quite strict. And as she got older, her rebellious nature collided with his ideas of what a daughter should be. If she wore makeup, he'd force her to wash it off. She peroxided her hair. (laughs) She knew he'd flip out, but she did it anyway. She says he thrashed her and also would hit her mother when she would try to intervene and would accuse her mom of raising Brit to be a, quote, slut. Mm -hmm. And remind me again, where, what country did she grow up in? Sweden. Okie dokie. When Britt was 17, she fell in love for the first time. By now, she says she kind of had begun to transform into the beautiful Brit that we know. She met this boy who was also 17 named Shell. He left school. He was selling cars by the day, drumming in bands at night. They were secretly engaged because Britt knew that her dad would not approve. She talks about losing her virginity to him after they'd been dating for a year. It does sound like she kind of felt pressure from him and school friends that she hadn't done it already and it was more kind of like to get it over with yeah Uh, a little over a year after they got engaged Britt broke it off she felt that they'd grown apart and that his ambition was much more limited than her own after the split her relationship with her dad eased up he began taking her out to parties which he attended and that was a huge shock because she realized her dad was this playboy and flirt and 
saw him with another woman and that caused more friction between them. Yeah, I don't love that. It's funny because I just restarted my so-called life and that's um, in the first episode, she sees her dad with a woman and that shifts their entire relationship, the father-daughter relationship. I've never seen it. Oh, I got to lend it to you. It's so good. It's like 90s heaven. By this point, Britt really wanted out of the house. She really dreamed of being a vet, but the idea of more schooling and less independence did not sit well with her. So another goal began to take shape, which was becoming an actress. She mentions Brigitte Bardot being an inspiration to her. For anyone who doesn't know, we have an episode on Brigitte, so go check that out. She had been in the school play at 12, and she really enjoyed it. And by 15, Brigitte became her total idol. And that's when she really began to transform into the blonde beauty and all of the classmates were like, wow, you look so much like Brigitte. (laughs) So one school friend had a sister who worked for a TV producer and he was working on a show about modern teenagers and trends. And since Bardot was a huge inspiration among teens, Britt got cast because of how much she looked like her. Ooh, this is pretty meta. Amuse, inspiring, amuse, inspiring, amuse. So from that cameo, she was asked to do walk-ons and other programs and to model in some commercials and cinema adverts. Britt's parents were less than impressed, not really happy with the idea of her becoming an actress, and her dad did make her take typing classes so she would have something to fall back on. She kept getting more opportunities, though, and finally her dad began to support the idea, and he allowed her to spend time with a family friend who was in the theatrical business, And that friend said so many positive things about Brit's future career. And that made her dad agree to pay for one year of drama school in Stockholm. Right on. Yeah. Brit enjoyed it. And she also began taking ballet classes. And she ended up having an affair with her ballet teacher. Hot. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Actually, no, it's not. I don't want to know. It's not. It's not hot. It's not hot. It became a minor scandal because he was this mysterious older man who would kind of like reappear and disappear and reappear. Maybe partly because of this and her decision to go into acting, Britt's father withdrew all of his financial support for her come her second year. So Britt became a hat check girl at a theater. That was her first real job. Her next was in a traveling review company that put on like an old variety type of show. She made swift strides from minor parts to major and had a little dalliance with a pianist in the troupe. So in terms of being a hat check girl, I do have to say that I worked as a coat check girl at one time for a very popular music venue in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Oh, yeah. I've definitely worked the same at many different venues. And yeah, it's great. A lot of fun. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it when... Like the the celebrities would come on and they'd be like, I'm on the, I'd be like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Give them a stamp. I love it. And yeah, so Brit just had a little thing with the pianist. And I like that because she's always had a thing for musicians, clearly. She also had an affair with an Italian director. I'm going to butcher his name, I'm sure. I think it's I- Iggy Polidoro. And uh, she was cast in his film. She stayed in Rome for a while to be with him. And she says it was really the first time she felt like a real woman and sexually fulfilled and everything. So this is, I guess, when she's, you know, becoming a woman. Yeah, get those orgasms, Brit. A big break came for Brit. My God, try saying that five times. Mm -hmm. A big break came for Brit when 20th Century Fox Scouts saw her in a coffee bar and told her about an audition that was happening at a nearby hotel. So Daryl Zanuck, who was a huge Hollywood producer... He saw her and asked if she would come to New York for some screen tests. They ended up signing her under a contract that would have her in 14 films and making $250,000. Imagine being so pretty that you're just hanging out in a coffee shop and someone's like, would you like to be in a dozen films? (laughs) Yeah, here's $250,000. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, It's also interesting to know that that's all these Hollywood stars back then were just owned by studios and they had no say in what 14 films they were going to be in. Oh, right. Yeah. So 20th Century Fox immediately flew her to London and had a public unveiling of her as their new big star without even putting her in a film yet. Don't have to. No. She's so pretty. Yes. Her photo would make all of the papers and she was already causing quite a stir among the leading men in London. 
Michael Caine, who was set to be her next co-star, invited her out for dinner that evening. But another offer she felt that she couldn't refuse came when a man knocked on her hotel door and said his employer saw her in the evening paper, heard they were in the same hotel and would like to have dinner and take some photos. Britt was intrigued and even more so when she found out that the name of this guy's employer was Peter Sellers. Okay, well, the reason why he wants to take photos is because he's going to keep that magazine cut out, but he wants more, and there's no Instagram. That's true. That there's is true. no Google. You would have to ask people, can I take a photo of you? You couldn't just save all the ones that they posted. Some might argue it's less creepy. True. Yes, at least you know about it. You know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> he's giving you ample notice. <laughs> Advance notice. You get a dinner. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so she went. The photos he wanted to take weren't risque, just regular. And then he asked if she wanted to go see one of his latest films, which was in the theater, which was Pink Panther. Great film. Basically, Sellers charms her with champagne, her first joint, stories about like what a suave man he is. She was mesmerized. She was like, wow, who is this man? So the next morning, she woke up in her own room (laughs) by a delivery of a ridiculous amount of flowers all from sellers that night they had dinner again and she says my emotions ran fast in the wake of the unquenchable passions generated by sellers we were in the space of 48 hours already pledging our undying love for one another he then began showering her with gifts flowers diamonds a puppy this is all in the span of five days Speaking as somebody who has a puppy and who has had a puppy for three weeks, I would kill someone (laughs) if they gave me a puppy. Right? That's not a great gift unless that's what they've always wanted and they talk about a con. Like, you can't surprise puppy gift someone. That's just... Don't do it. No, don't do it. She says that he never proposed marriage to her. It was just kind of automatically assumed that was going to happen. And... Sellers announced it in the press and a media circus began around the couple. So on February 19th, 1964, 10 days after they met, 21-year-old Brit married 38-year-old Sellers. It was such a media spectacle and there were more fans there than actual guests. Okay. Did they love each other? Can you love someone after 10 days? You can be lustful. You can love what you know of them after 10 days. (laughs) Did they did they grow to love each other? They definitely loved each other, but let's let, let me tell you. Let me tell you all about okay. this. So after a sweet five day honeymoon, Sellers had to go to LA to film, and Britt had to be in London to do the same. He put her up in his flat in Chelsea, which she calls a gilded cage, though she didn't realize it yet. Only a few weeks into their marriage, Britt says. The true character of Sellers began to emerge. His incredible affection soured rapidly into a habitual jealousy, which filled the first few weeks of our marriage with despair. So Sellers had friends on set where Britt was working and they would report to him. And if she spoke to someone, he would call her and, you know, get mad at her about it. Her co-star, John Layton, was known for getting physical with his leading ladies. And Sellers was constantly asking her, like, did he try anything? He hadn't, but Sellers wouldn't believe it. When Easter came around, Britt wanted to take time off to see him to kind of ease his mind. Sellers was previously married with two kids, and they were going to L.A. to see him. She asked for time off, but she didn't get it. But Sellers insisted she come anyways, and she did. She snuck away one evening, thinking she'd be back after a couple days on set. But when she got to L.A., Sellers said that she looked ill and called a doctor who agreed with Sellers that Brit had to stay there and get rest. So they convinced her that she was on a, like the verge of a breakdown, basically. And in the end, Brit was fired from that film and Sellers had to pay Fox $60,000 for breach of contract. The original gaslighting. Yeah, he was super controlling and awful. I'm going to quote Brit here. Sellers believed that the essence of his masculinity relied on his ardor as a lover. 
So Brit says that he was always in search of what he called the ultimate orgasm, and that led him to discovering and abusing drugs such as amyl nitrate, which became a routine component in their sex life. He was abusing them so much that on one night, just 46 days after their wedding, in the middle of their lovemaking, Sellers had the first in a series of eight heart attacks. The other seven happened in the hospital and brought him near death, of course. After a rough road, Sellers did recover, and Britt ended up getting pregnant pretty much right when he got home. So Britt was somewhat learning to be a mother during this period because she had to help Sellers get back to full strength. So she, not only did she get pregnant, she had the baby. Yes. she had. She, well, she had a baby with Sellers, as in Sellers is the baby. And then she had a, a baby. <laughs> She had a baby, their daughter, Victoria, who was born January 20th, 1965. Oh, she's an Aquarius, just like me. Nice. So Britt kind of skips over the next year or so, basically ups and downs. She wasn't really working. She was there for him and the baby. She does mention Sellers was very into astrology and superstition. And basically anything he heard, he would believe. So someone told him purple was a bad color an omen of death. And after that, he wouldn't be near anyone who was wearing purple. They couldn't have anything purple around him. She says he placed so much trust in powers of spiritualists, mediums, faith healers, and others with knowledge of the occult. So of course that also had a negative effect on him and his marriage and his mood swings. Is he still alive? No, 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 no. Okay. I think about a year after she had Victoria, Peter decided they should make a film together. She says Sellers wanted to pass on his comedic techniques to her and wanted her to be a star. But she also felt this underlying reason that he wanted to work with her so that he could keep an eye on her, which of course was true. When she would get job offers with other leading men, he would immediately get jealous and suspicious. He was pretty much a monster to her, reminding her he's the boss, that he could fire her at any time. He threatened to divorce her multiple times. After these big fights, though, there would be, you know, a pleasant period where he'd shower her with gifts and love. And we, we all know this story. We all know this cycle. Mm -hmm. When she took other roles, he would insist on vetting the scripts, making sure that she would have a stand-in for any parts where she was you know, to show any part of her body. She says when they were both working on separate sets, he'd call her incessantly to check up on her. She mentions one time going to this party that was thrown for Paul Newman. And in the middle of it, someone came up to her and was like, there's a phone call for you. And he had tracked her down and was like, why are you there? You should be home right now. So over time, the stress of the marriage really began to weigh her down. She had a bad night and she took extra sleeping pills and she was knocked out for two days. Wow. She says it wasn't a suicide attempt, but she just, you know, had enough and she like didn't want to feel anymore and just wanted blackout. Yeah. It was, was also taking a toll on sellers as well. I mean, he's not mentally stable. She says he was suffering from depression, but sellers really thought it was something physical. So he'd go to the doctors, but the doctors couldn't find anything physical. And again, that cycle just basically went on for four years. So ups and downs. It's a long time, especially when you're that young. Yeah. After a couple splits and reconciliations, they went on this vacation to Rome together to try to sort things out. But that's when it all came to blows. Sellers really acted appallingly, which is no surprise. He basically kicked her out of the hotel in the middle of the night, really scared her, stepped on his ring and flattened it, which she says she, he did more than once during their marriage. He made such a scene at the hotel getting her kicked out that the story leaked to the press and she basically had to plan her escape out of Rome and she went to Sweden to wait until the dust settled. Did he just keep buying these like cheap rings just so he could squash them? <laughs> I I mean, they probably weren't cheap knowing him, but yeah, like uh, I can't even imagine how draining those fights must have been. Yeah. She says it was about a week after she went to Sweden to like let things cool down, that she saw headlines about Peter Sellers romancing Mia Farrow. The headline read, Exit Brit, Enter Mia. So she decided to return to England and file for divorce. When she went there, she 
returned to their home and learned that all of her stuff had been moved into boxes. Who? Yeah. After Sellers rebound with Mia, he, of course, came running back to her. Please don't divorce me. But in Brit's words, yes, I still loved him. But for once in my life, my head didn't give way to my heart. My head didn't give way to my heart. I loved him. So did she... So she... She finally broke the pattern. Right. Because she was using her head, not her heart. Yes. On to the next one. So Britt ends up working to take her mind off the impending divorce. And she meets a man named Bino, who runs a film company in Rome. So Bino is married with kids, but he assures her all is well. I guess. And Bino. <laughs> exactly. Everything's cool. Okay, Bino. She's on her own for the first time. She's lonely. This is all new to her. An affair happens. He decides he wants to leave his wife and tells her. Then Bino's wife goes to Peter Sellers and tells him about the affair. And Sellers puts private eyes on them to use that against her in the divorce. Yeah. He is out for blood. Yeah. They officially divorced in December of 1968 after four years of marriage. She got 30,000 pounds and did not ask for alimony. And they had joint custody of Victoria. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. So Britt and Bino, mm. they were still happy together. She wanted to move in with him, but Sellers kind of threatened that he'd go after full custody of Victoria, so she moved into her own place. But her and Bino are living it up. They're the new hot couple in Rome. She says they began traveling the world together. Bino was loaded rich. He was giving her all these insane gifts. Again, jewelry, trips. He had a massive yacht. But in a short period of time, business went from booming to not so well. And the film they made together wasn't a hit. And suddenly the yacht's gone. The house is gone. Britt gave back all of the jewelry that he'd given her to help him out financially. Over time, the stress he was under affected their relationship, and she didn't feel that spark anymore. Their relationship lasted around two years, and after their split, she really tried to help him out multiple times. He ended up kind of homeless. She gave him an apartment to stay in. She loaned him money when she could. Apparently, his family, like, just, he came from money, and his family turned their back on him, and he was really struggling, and tragically, he ended up committing suicide in 1971. And she says six months after he died, Bino's dad died and left a $4 million state behind. To no one. To no one. It's just, it's also like so upsetting to know that you have all that money, but you won't help out your kid when they need it. So even though her and Sellers divorced for the years after, he would still constantly try to woo her and, you know, call and he would talk about his relationships with whatever woman he was with. But of course, she couldn't talk about her relationships. It was just all about him. And she was just trying to maintain a friendship for their daughter's sake. So she did manage to get to a point with him where they could talk and be okay. She began dating Patrick Litchfield, who is a very well-known British photographer. And he has royal blood. So Brit got in with the royals. 
I didn't mention this before, but Sellers was also good friends with the Royals. And she makes a point to mention like the Royal family and hanging out with them a lot in the book. And that doesn't interest me so much, but if you're interested in that, any listeners check out the book, there's plenty there. She goes into their time together, mostly discussing again, the Royals hanging out at these snobby houses. She goes into detail about the houses too. So it's pretty by the sounds of it. And when you started telling me about what she said about sellers and like the ultimate orgasm and the medications that he took, this sounds like a pretty juicy tell all. Oh, it is so juicy. And I love the way that she writes about these men. I have more quotes coming about other men later. And they're just, oh, this is like the juiciest book. I highly recommend it for everyone. Again, you just you don't get books like that anymore like they're not they're not this juicy anymore that's a great point it's great for what it is i think she would write it differently now and i'd love to get another book from her i would love her to write another one but yes it's very juicy love it so patrick wanted to marry her but brit's feelings weren't as strong and she didn't want to give up her career so they just had different lives and after a while they ended up going their separate ways. So when it comes to Peter and Brit's daughter, Victoria, she lived with Brit and would spend summers in Sweden with Brit's parents. Sometimes Peter would come with her and they'd all spend time in Sweden as a family. One such time, about two years after their divorce, Sellers went and they had to share a bedroom together. So of course he tries to get it on with her. She refuses. They end up cuddling. About two weeks later, Britt learns that Peter is getting married again to a woman named Miranda Quarry. She was a British model and a socialite. She was 22. He was 44. If you're curious from what I read, no real shocker here. Miranda's experience with sellers was the exact same as Britt's. They even divorced after four years. So mm-hmm. he just kind of repeated. And I wouldn't say they look alike, but she's another blonde, beautiful, cute. So around this time in the early 70s, Britt lost all the money that she had gained over her career due to her lawyers choosing bad investments for her without her knowledge or consent. Oh, that blows. Yeah. She ended up being in debt and she took some roles in films that required nudity that she might not have done otherwise. One of the parts was in Get Carter with Michael Caine, which is a great film, by the way. And happily, she says the experience was a great one and the crew was great and supportive. Other films she did that she wasn't very proud of. And it did really sting when critics took them and her apart. But she puts in the book, it was like a matter matter of survival for her. She wanted to make money for her and her daughter so that she could live. So she really worked hard to rebuild her bank account to be where it had been before. Mm -hmm. So now a familiar friend is going to pop in the picture. It's the 60s. Brit is beautiful. Every male star wants to meet her. What male playboy actor star do you think? It's Warren Beatty. It's Warren Beatty. (laughs) So Warren is Brit's next lover, and I absolutely had to add in her description of him because it is so good. It's too good not to put him. I'm quoting Brit here. Warren was the most divine lover of all. His libido was as lethal as high-octane gas. I had never known such pleasure in my life. Warren could handle women as smoothly as operating an elevator. He knew exactly where to locate the top button. One flick and we were on our way. I'm aroused. <laughs> Love Give it. Me this half of a beer. <laughs> So Warren was with Julie Christie at the time, of course, and Britt says that she did have fantasies of him kind of committing to her, but of course that was not Warren's style back then. Their affair was brief, but she says that no man made her happier than Warren did, at least in that time period. Did you ever watch Sex in the City? Yes. Do you remember the episode with Mr. Pussy? Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's and Charlotte tries to get him to commit. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's like Samantha is like, oh, no, honey. Like, everybody needs to, to experience that. He's yeah. not just for one person. Yeah. That's Warren Beatty, yeah. Mr. Pussy. <laughs> Love it. She also mentions a 10-day affair with George Hamilton. 
he said, or she says he asked her to marry him and she said no. All these men ask her to get married, except for him, baby. Tough life. She was working steadily for the next few years, and I think it was around 1972 or 73 that she actually worked with Marianne Faithful for a TV play. She says Marianne was battling her heroin addiction then, and it was sort of this marvelous comeback performance for her. She writes, I don't think many people knew the courage she showed in undertaking the role while still enduring the effects of cold turkey. She was desperately sick at my home, but I made her as comfortable as I could. I was joyful for Marianne. She was a warm, kind human being who had lost her way and was determined to get back onto the right path. She needed friends, and I was happy she came to regard me as one. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I I, like that for them. I just wanted to throw that in because it was so sweet. And of course, we love Marianne here. We sure do. Britt's next big relationship is with Lou Adler. If you don't know who Lou is, you should. He is a huge record producer, a talent scout, a film director, a producer. He's responsible for a lot of big names. He's the man behind the Mamas and Papas, Carol King, Jan and Dean. He discovered Cheech and Chong, directed Up in Smoke, produced the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He was big. Oh, so just a straight up genius. Yes. Yeah. All right. In 2013, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was impressive. Britt ended up moving in with him almost right away. They were constantly back and forth from their place in L.A. and in England. She says Lou was amazing with Victoria, but I think Victoria stayed in England for the most part, you know, going to school and everything. She talks about their friends and all the parties that they had. Again, this book is just so juicy and I want to put everything in but I can't but like it's just filled with names people like Mick and Bianca hanging out and all the all the names that you want to be in there are in there Mm -hmm. like all of her exes Lou was very generous with gifts one amazing one was that he booked not only her but both of their families to go to Vegas to see Elvis I think he was working and Lou couldn't come, but Britt ended up going with their families and she ended up getting so drunk on champagne before the show that she passed out and didn't even get to see Elvis, even though she was so excited about it. It honestly sounds like something I would do. (laughs) (laughs) I can totally picture that actually. (laughs) She swore the rest of the family to secrecy though and told Lou it was amazing. So Britt had always been a big music fan, and with Lou's connections, she was now really getting into music and going to a lot of shows and seeing like a lot of amazing concerts. Britt went back to Scotland to work on her next film, which is also a favorite of mine. It's called The Wicker Man. I think a lot of people know the Nick Cage remake, The Bees, but the original is good and very unsettling. And Can I say something that I'm not proud of? Oh, I got to hear it now. Well, was she nude in that film? Yes. I think this, I don't know why, and I don't know when, but I have Googled Britt Eklund Wickerman naked. I don't know why. I don't know when, but I have, and I did. <laughs> and let me say wow. Wow. Yeah. Wowie, wow, yeah. wow. So was this like more her choice then? Because you had mentioned before that she had felt maybe a little bit of pressure to do it for her and her daughter. Is at this point, is she taking more control over it and feeling more empowered, I hope? Absolutely, yes. I think she really enjoyed that experience. And yeah, she's just in her prime there. And she does this song and dance naked. Great film too. But I mean, (laughs) I guess you can also just Google... Like you did. <laughs> like I said, I don't know why. I don't know when. But I did it. And I need everybody to know it. I'm sure a lot of people are doing that right now. It was while on set she discovered that she was pregnant again. She didn't think that she'd ever have another kid. And she was really happy. And when she called to tell Lou, Lou acted a little strange. Mm-hmm. He asked when it was due. And he congratulated her. Diane Salento, her Wickerman co-star, was into tarot, and Britt says that she got a reading from her, and she was told she'd have a child, but that she would never marry the man that she had the child with. And Diane didn't know about the pregnancy, so Britt was like, whoa, okay. So her and Lou decided to meet in Paris to discuss the baby. He told her flat out he wasn't ever going to marry her 
or live with her permanently, but that he would support her. On June 10th, 1973, their son, Nick Adler, was born. Jack Nicholson was the godfather, and I think he was also at the birth, which I just thought was so funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> at the birth. Push, yeah. Brit! <laughs> Imagine Here's seeing that, like, baby. the shining face, like... Yes! Legs. <laughs> That's what I was thinking! That's exactly my train of thought. <laughs> Amazing. So... Her and Lou were still in a relationship, though, and they were still sometimes living together. A while after Nick was born, Britt discovered Lou was having an affair with Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and Papas. Shocker. Yeah. Britt was really in love with Lou, and she would really tried to make it work for a while, but the trust is gone, and, you know, it affected their relationship. She had a brief affair with the actor Ryan O'Neill at this time, but she calls that relationship a comfort and a consolation. Mm-hmm. Her career did hit a high point, though, when she got the part of Mary Goodnight in The Man with the Golden Gun. So she became a Bond girl, and she was thrilled. This is a Roger Moore James Bond film, for anyone curious, not a Sean Connery one. For all you Bond nerds out there. Nothing like Bond girls. Lou and Britt officially ended, and she discovered that Lou had been having another affair with one of her friends, Phyllis Sumner, Summer. And just like Sellers with Miranda, Lou's relationship with Phyllis was very similar to the one he had with Britt. He wouldn't marry her. He also ended up having a son with her. But Britt says after their relationship ended, they were really able to form a great friendship. So it worked out for the best. Six weeks after Lou and Britt's official end, Rod Stewart enters her life. There he is, the crow man himself. I don't know if anybody calls him that. I thought I saw it somewhere, somewhere once. <laughs> well, we can call him the crow man. Okay. <laughs> or the rooster. rooster. Um, Maybe TJ just popped his head in the door and made a beer motion to his face, which means that since I have, since I'm currently drinking the last beer in the house, he is on his way to go get more beer. Nice. <laughs> Friday night, babies. All right, let me tell you about Rod. She was bummed out about Lou, obviously. So her friend, Joan Collins, Mm -hmm. was like, hey, let's go to a concert. So they go to Rod's show, and afterwards, they head over to their friend's house. You might have heard of their friend, Cher. (laughs) (laughs) This is the kind of, like, juicy book this is. Like, every person mentioned is someone insane. Mm -hmm. So her and Rod are at Cher's house. They hit it off talking all night they end up going on a few dates very early on like three or four dates in rod's british girlfriend d harrington shows up in la tracks him down has a big scene that's the end of that relationship brit tells a story about knowing there was something real between them when they were at another friend's house you might have also heard of her Joni mitchell and Joni, Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney are all like jamming out. And Rod was like, oh, no, I don't want to jam with them. I just want to be with you. And that's when she was like, ooh, this is real. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard of her before. Yeah. <laughs> she says that they would make love three or four times a day. And she just couldn't get enough of him. He couldn't get enough of her. About six months in, she agrees to move in with him. She had been keeping him waiting to see his level of commitment, and I guess it was there, and they found a house. They fixed it up together. She talks about how Rod has a ton of money, and they had a staff for the house, and were just living it up, having parties, being together. Soon, they were a massive it couple of the 70s. They even used their relationship to promote not only Rod's music, but Brit's films at the time. They would do press tours together. And I don't hate that. I like that. He, she does say that Rod would get angry every once in a while, though, when the press would ask personal questions about them, which makes no sense because if you're doing a press tour together, of course, you're going to be asked about your relationship. And he did take it out on Brit. He says that oh. she says that they would physically fight sometimes. Rod would hit her. She would hit him. They would make up. She talks about Rod being really stingy with money which I've heard from other people too. After all her exes though, I imagine stingy is probably way more considerable than anything I would imagine, you know? But he does sound pretty extra considering his wealth. Yeah. 
like most of our muses, Brit had an influence on Rod's look at the time. They like to dress alike. I'll post photos on Instagram, but please everyone do yourself a favor and Google their photos together. They are incredible. They're iconic. They're so great. She would also do his makeup for shows and she says that he would wear her underwear while he was on stage because it kept him tucked in. <laughs> well, with Rod, Britt experienced the tour life for the first time. She goes into good detail about the debauchery that she witnessed by the band and the crew. There's a great quote where she says, Life, I discovered, can deteriorate to a primitive medieval level while traveling with a rock band. <laughs> ha ha ha. <laughs> a lesson for everybody. Yeah. Put that on a t-shirt. She talks about them trashing hotel rooms, says that there were a couple times that they had to fork out like three or four thousand dollars for the repairs. She also mentions heavy cocaine use among the roadies, but that Rod and her were sort of into fitness. And while they did partake, they weren't at the, you know, crazy party level, I guess, at the time. Britt also talks about the groupies trying to get Rod's attention. She says, I was more bewildered by groupies than I could find myself jealous of them. They would lay siege on the stage door or the hotel and throw themselves at Rod and kissing and groping him as though he was some sort of sexual messiah. Every exit made from a concert hall would be like running the gauntlet from almost as many groupies as genuine fans. Well, we can't all be discovered in cafes, Brit. Some of us have to knock down backstage <laughs> doors. Okay. Exactly. Uh, she does tell a story about a groupie breaking into her hotel room. She talks about getting phone calls from fans begging her to leave Rod. She even received death threats. Well, that's not cool. No. She says that she also got fan mail from girls asking her to describe or draw Rod's anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> so... Apparently at this time, though, Rod was sort of over the thrill of getting with groupies, so it was never an actual issue in their relationship. Mm -hmm. Britt spilled some tea about Rod being very jealous of Mick Jagger. She says that on the night of his biggest gig in London, Mick and Keith asked for tickets, and Rod deliberately snubbed them, saying, oh, there's no tickets available. And then when they were like, well, just give us backstage passes, he refused to give those as well. She also says that while touring in Australia, he cold-shouldered ABBA by refusing to let them use a giant video screen that was part of his equipment. Rod sounds like a nightmare. And Brit's just too hot. She's yeah. just too hot. So just build a wall around her because if Mick Jagger gets in, she is <laughs> fucked literally. Yeah. Brit says Rod suffered perpetual nightmares of possible loss of voice, and it developed into a paranoia to a point where he did start having issues. And like sellers, doctors couldn't always find issues, so it was more maybe psychological, like such a fear that he had. This was when Rod was with the Faces, and it was in 1975 when they officially broke up. Rod's eagle couldn't handle being in a group, and he had already recorded his first solo album before they parted ways. So she mentions in the book that some people may have thought that she had something to do with that decision, which of course made me think of Yoko, but obviously she was not involved, though she of course was a huge supporter of Rod. And she did get involved in his music business and like really understood that side and encouraged him to write more of his own stuff, create your own label, like that's where the money is. In an interview, Rod even said, sometimes... With respect to Billy Gaff, who manages me brilliantly, I wonder why Brit's not my manager. She's so aware of the business I'm in, and I've never had a partner like that before. Brit came along and said I was wasting my talent, and she gave me a kick in the ass. Who run the world? Brit does. When Rob began working on his second studio album, he surprised Brit by asking her to do a voiceover in French in the final line of the lyrics for his song, Tonight's the Night. I remember this video. I remember the song on the radio all my life growing up. And of course, it's one of those songs that you hear, but you don't, or that you listen to, but you like, you don't fully hear. And it wasn't until reading this book where I was like, oh yeah, let me rewatch that, that I 
really was like, whoa, okay, I understand these lyrics now. And wow, I'm surprised this got any radio play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why too sexy, too sexual? The song's about a girl losing her virginity to Rod and he stares into the camera and woos you, basically, or tries to. So my question about this music video is that she's in it, clearly, but we only see the back of her? Why are we not why are we not given the gift of Brit's beautiful face? What's the point of that? I can only imagine that Rod didn't want to be outshone. Uh, you nailed it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So around this time Rod is saying things to the newspapers like We've got more power as a rock and roll twosome than Peter Wolf and Phil Donaway, Linda and Paul McCartney, Mick and Bianca Jagger, and we're the only two not married. So they are talking about marriage at this time, though it's still a sticky subject. Britt moved her whole life to California to be with them and set up their home. And she does mention arguments that they would have over talking about their future and it came to a point where Brit decided I'm going to spend a summer in Sweden. Rod's working on his next album. Let's take some time apart and see what happens. When she came back, he picked her up from the airport. He was like, I wrote this song about you. That song ended up being you're in my heart. So he writes this song. You're in my heart. She's thinking great. Like he loves me just as much as I love him. So you can imagine her surprise when her old lover, George Hamilton comes up to her at a party and was like, wow, I saw Rod with this other woman named Liz Treadwell. I knew it. This is a weird, weird situation because Liz Treadwell is George Hamilton's ex. So they were couple then George and Liz were a couple. Now Rod and Liz are maybe a couple. Sounds like regular time in the small town where I'm from. Yeah. I mean, this sounds like my dating life in Toronto, and that's not even a small town. So, <laughs> so yeah, he's like, your ex and my ex are dating. And Britt's like, he's not my ex. So she confronts Rod. He admits the affair. He ends up moving out of their home while they're trying to decide like what to do about their relationship. She heard that Liz, while they're taking these, this time apart, is staying with Rod. So she's like, what? This is a real, real messy breakup. It was a mess. She thought she was going to spend the rest of her life with him, that they were not only partners in love, but she kind of had given up her career at that point to focus and help him on his. And during this time, she says he was continually coming back and like begging her back and she was like not if you're with this other girl unfortunately she did take him back once more and of course even though he's telling her one thing he was back partying he was with groupies he was living a more single man lifestyle that's because he's a womanizer womanizer he's a woman womanizer i actually remember in sharon osborne's book she mentions hanging out with brit at this time and brit only weighing 90 pounds because she was so upset and heartbroken and dealing with this pain she was just a little little brit so they end up getting in a messy palimony case because brit's lawyers were really on her suggesting that she sue him for 12.5 million that did end up settling out of court i don't know how much but that settled funny enough rod ends up marrying a different woman named alana stewart in 1979 And Alana Stewart was George Hamilton's ex-wife from 71 to 76. So they just kept dating each other's exes. Okay. So this is actually where Brit's book ends. Oh. Yeah. As I mentioned, it had a release in 1980. I think her and Rod officially split in 77. Did she leave any words of wisdom? Was like, or did it just end abruptly? It ends by her saying... This is only the beginning, and I wasn't born to be a loser. And she's right. She wasn't. <laughs> so yeah, Good. I'm going to fill in the blanks because Brit's exciting life continued on. Great. During this period, she dated a lot of different musicians. John Waite, one of the guys from the Bay City Whirlers, <laughs> Phil Lewis from the band LA Guns. She dated him from 79 to 81. They were engaged for a bit before calling it quits. In 1980, Peter Sellers died. Okay. 
Britt has since been involved in documentaries about him and she shares their story. And of course, upon reflection, she says that she believes he had bipolar and, you know, whether it was that or something else, he clearly had a lot of issues that he was dealing with. At the time of his death, he was married to another woman named Lynn Frederick. There is a biopic on Peter Sellers called The Life and Death of Peter Sellers. Jeffrey Rush plays Peter, and Charlize Theron plays Brit, which is a perfect casting choice. Oh, wow. It came out in 2004. Check it out. You can find out Peter Sellers' story, and it does explain a lot of Have his- you seen every film ever? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. That's what I thought. I love Peter Sellers' films as well. Dr. Strangelove is probably my favorite. I love the Pink Panther movies. He was great. I love him as a comedian. After her split with Rod, she moved into one of Lou Adler's houses with their son. And like Lou said, he really did make sure to be there for them when they needed it. They're still good friends. He supported her. They have a great relationship. So the house that Lou set Brit up in was actually the same house that John Lennon spent his lost weekend in. Oh, okay. And Lou kicked John out so that Brit could move in. (laughs) Okay. I must have read that when I was reading about May Pang. In 1984, Brit got married to Slim Jim Phantom. He is best known as the drummer for the rockabilly band The Stray Cats. We love Slim Jim. Jim was 23. Brit was 42 at the time. Slim has a memoir that came out in 2016 called A Stray Cat Struts. I've read it. I'm going to quote a few things here that he says about Brit. Wait, is this the one that ha- that you got from the library that has all of the comments in the margins? It is the one. Oh my God, that, that was funny. You sent me screenshots of that. Somebody got a book out of the library, took a pencil and wrote their own uh, opinions about Slim Jim in the margins. And it's just still there. I, it was not in pencil or else I would have erased it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like the library is like, yeah, we'll just still keep this in circulation. Fuck it. I was really upset. And I, yeah, I took it back and reported it. And they looked at me like I was crazy for reporting that someone had written in this book. It was upsetting to me. I don't like people who do that. It's if, you're, if it's your own book, do whatever you want with it. Library books are different. Mm-hmm. They're sacred. Here's what Slim has to say about Brit. I don't know if I believe in love at first sight, but I definitely believe there's a connection at first sight. When Britt came down the stairs and we were introduced, I knew something was different about her. We had an immediate deep connection. She was older than I was, but I was only 22, so most everybody was older than I was, it seemed. I didn't notice this immediately. She looked like what she was, a glamorous European movie star. I have always said and still say now that our age difference was never a factor until much later. She was stunning. She spoke perfect English with a Swedish accent and got things slightly wrong in translation. I had no idea who she was, just that she was a movie actress, and she had no idea who I was, just that I was a guy in a band. My connection and relationship with Brit was then and is now genuine, not a rock and roll stunt, and it has stood the test of time. Even when we split up, there was no animosity and no ugly legal action. All right. Would you date a younger man like that? No, I don't think so. Think you could do it? You think I could? Yeah, I think you could. <laughs> I could see that. I could see a 44-year-old Lynx dating a 22-year-old guy and it like somehow working. <laughs> Britt had her third child at age 45 in 1988 with Slim Jim and they had a son named tj oh my god that's my age is it my tj is my (laughs) tj the son of he kind of looks like them oh my god i'm gonna have to go ask him after this (laughs) maybe i am dating somebody with money after all this all this time he's been doing like a joe schmo thing on me like does she really love me and once she realizes that she does love me and she thinks that I don't have any money. I'm going to come out and say, guess what, baby? I'm a millionaire. I'll keep you all updated. Look, if you don't <laughs> hear from me, he's not the <laughs> spawn of Brit and Slim Jim. If he is, then you'll hear from me. All right. 
We'll keep a pin And we're in all that. going on vacation. Britt and Slim divorced in 1992, but as you heard from him, they still have a great relationship. He shares some stories from their marriage, and it sounds like they really had a great time together, and I was so happy to read that Britt found a great guy, especially after the Rod bullshit. I'm not going to put all the stories in Slim's book in here. I do encourage people to go read his book, though. I just wanted to mention one story in it that when they had dinner with George and Olivia Harrison. Nice. They got invited back to Friar Park, and Slim says when they drove in, he was like, wow, what a nice place. And George was like, that's the gardener's house. Oh, <laughs> yeah. My kind and then of they drove a little more. They drove a little more, saw a couple more houses, and then finally saw Friar Park. And he talks about how magnificent that was, how he got a tour from George, that George showed him a bunch of old beetle memorabilia and actually gave him an old pair of beetle boots. And George signed his signature and Ringo's in it and gave them to Slim and said, if you ever need money, sell them. They're just a pair of boots. Cool. Right? I yeah. love that story. I didn't know that those pair of boots were in my father-in-law's estate. I'll have to ask <laughs> him about it. So Britt worked in TV and film throughout the 80s. She stopped around the mid-90s. I read an article in the Yorkshire Post where she mentions feeling the effects of aging in Hollywood, of course. She says, people still expect you to look young and sexy in your early 50s, and I find it difficult to do that. I've now accepted... And I've made sure everyone else has that I'm an old woman. And if I look good, it's because I'm healthy and I live a healthy lifestyle. I feel as good as I did in my 30s. So good for Brit. Yeah, I mean, look at and look at JLo. Yes, exactly. And Brit's still yeah. unbelievably gorgeous, of course. In the mm -hmm. 2000s, she did a lot of cool stuff. She did some theater work in London. She even put on her own show called Brit on Brit, which she described as a gentle stroll through my life, just me talking about the way it was. I mean, I would do that too. That's brilliant. I know, and I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. Brit's mother, unfortunately, passed away from Alzheimer's, and that really, of course, affected Brit. She ended up becoming an ambassador for the Alzheimer's Society, and she's raised a lot of money to help battle the disease. In the last 10 years, Britt has worked nonstop in reality TV. She's been a guest on so many and a star on others. Things like I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, The Swedish Hollywood Housewives, Let's Dance, and just last year, The Real Marigold Hotel. So she's like kicking butt. She's 78. She's looking great. She's working constantly. She's fabulous. Do you think at this point she's working because she wants to and it makes her fulfilled? Or is she working because maybe there's like money, money issues and she has to? From what I can tell, I would assume that she does it because she just loves being active. And like I said, she's 78, but she's still very young at heart and she has a great social media presence she's on instagram for people who want to check her out there she just looks like she has like this great happy and healthy life i've seen recent quotes like i said where she's very much in support of the me too movement there's a quote that she said once women are past 50 it's over it's still a man's world that's what makes money the me too movement showed that things can change and we must never stop trying hmm. Britt's children are obviously all grown up now, and they all live in L.A. She also has homes in Sweden and London, of course. She has two grandsons now. She has a pet chihuahua named Bowie. And, yeah, she looks very happy and healthy, and, like, she's just living her best life. And it's just so great to end with such positivity. I think she's such an yeah, inspiration. Yeah, that sounds like kind of a best-case scenario. She had these wonderful romances and these not-so-great relationships. She had some downs in her careers, but she built herself back up. And, if yeah, she's working because she loves it, and that's wonderful. I like that. Yeah. Good for her. Well, there you go. That's Thank you so much for that. I learned so much. She's always really just been a beautiful face to me, and I've known that she's been amused, but I loved hearing that story. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, and everyone should go check out her Instagram because, yeah, she posts often. And Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Check us out on 
what all platforms instagram tiktok twitter facebook stereo we couldn't be on any more platforms so yeah check us out follow us rate review we're not on linkedin so Yet. don't even try to find us there. We're not on LinkedIn yet. If you've made it all the way to the end of this episode, this is only a listener of this episode thing. If you leave us uh, a rating and a review on Apple iTunes and you send it to us, the first three people that do that are going to get three stickers. So we have three Muses stickers if you do that. And if you're listening right now, only the people that are listening will send you those stickers. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This was a blast. Cheers. Whatever Cheers. day of the week you're listening, it doesn't matter. Cheers to you. God yeah, we bless. We love you. We love you. Bye-bye. Bye. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by us, Chantella Mew and Lynx O'Leary. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.